0: Well, comrade, what now? Straightforward conversation.
1: the gutters where we talk about the stories within the panels i'm your co-host albert and with us is our other
0: co-host yo what's up everybody i'm the other co-host my name is drew how you doing
1: hey hey, everyone that was really good that was probably the sharpest we've ever sounded i think uh if you're not on our patreon you ought to be now (laughs) (laughs)
0: Our non-existent imaginary. Patreon. Our non-existent
1: imaginary Patreon that doesn't give you anything. <laughs> nor does it leave you a link where you can leave us money.
0: <laughs> because we're not in this for money. We're in this because we are men of integrity.
1: Sure. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Who's our sponsor this episode, Albert?
1: Uh, I don't know. Nightmare goblins. Um, because why have a a peaceful night's sleep when you can invite nightmare goblins into your skull to partake of all your brain juice?
0: (laughs) That sounds kind of gross.
1: Yeah, well, just think about it this way. I imagine that nightmare goblins get bad publicity, so it would make sense that nightmare goblins would be paying us to do press ads for them They need all the press they can get. Exactly. And we're willing to give them that attention.
0: Because we're men of integrity.
1: I was going to say because we're whores, but sure. (laughs) (laughs) We will do anything for money. (laughs) (laughs) What we got this week, Drew?
0: Well, this week we are continuing... Our year-long read-through of Deadly Class. It is now, as we record this, late in the month of November. We're recording this on Black Friday. So hope everybody in America, at least, who celebrates Thanksgiving, enjoyed their holiday. But yeah, we're getting close to the end. Uh every month this year, we've done one episode dedicated to a single volume of Deadly Class. And it's a 12-volume series. So we're going to wrap things up in December and start on with a different read-through in 2024. But right now, we are covering Volume 11 of Deadly Class, which is also titled A Fond Farewell, Part 1. See, that's how you know the ending is going to be epic because it's Part 1 of the ending. You can't contain this ending in one single volume. You know, it's like those Harry Potter movies or whatever other movies where the the final part of the of the series is divided up into two halves.
1: Yeah, it's 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 everything that's come out since the Lord of the Rings because we <laughs> just need to stretch it out just a little longer so that we can cash in just a little more. And seeing as how me and you are whores, this is a Fawn farewell, a podcast about a Fawn farewell, volume 11 of Deadly Class, part one. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Let's makes tune me in next something... week to see what we have to say about the rest of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do it it the do. Of, <laughs>
0: makes me think of something like Attack on Titan, which is an anime series that had a final season. And then after that came out, later on, there was final season, part two, and then I think recently there was Attack on Titan, the final season, part three, <laughs> and it was just like, what is this? How is it but really final is, if there's a part one?
1: <laughs> but the thing is, people are here for it. They go to it, and they they gorge on just the, uh, what's it called, the edging that, that these shows create, right? Because yeah. – It's all about cashing in on on the perception that the end is coming and just milking it for as much as you can.
0: Yeah, really just (laughs) stoking the fires of anticipation for the true final conclusion.
1: Exactly. Apparently, all consumers of uh, art and any kind of story and pop culture, we're just chimps that are you know, pressing that button to give ourselves immediate gratification. But if we can trick our brains into believing that that gratification is just delayed just a little bit just to get a little more, you know, uh, dopamine out of it, we're going to do it to ourselves. Exactly. Yeah, baby.
0: All right. So, Deadly Class, Volume 11, A Fond Farewell, Part 1. As usual, Deadly Class is co-created by writer Rick Remender and artist Wes Craig. Colored by Lee Luridge, and lettered and logo designed by Russ Wooten. Yeah.
1: They're the oh, same I was waiting for you people.
0: to do your uh, Woot Woot or Wootan Klon <laughs> shout out or whatever you normally do. <laughs>
1: uh, ain't no clon like a Klondike bar.
0: <laughs> Switching it up. Nice.
1: There we go. You remember those on Klondike bar commercials?
0: I don't remember that tagline.
1: Well, I mean, Russ Wooten probably was was just a child when those came out, <laughs> but. <laughs> no, okay, the tagline was What would you do for a Klondike bar?
0: <laughs> okay, okay. I you s- sort of see the connection. Actually, I don't you... at all, but. I'll take it. <laughs> you don't remember, for remember sake the ice
1: cream, man? You don't remember the ice cream? <laughs>
0: I remember the ice cream. I don't remember yeah. the commercial. Maybe I just didn't watch enough TV as a kid. I don't know.
1: That was that was like their catchphrase. What would you do for a Klondike bar? Because the commercials were all about people asking you. They would offer you a Klondike bar, and then they would ask you, like, would you be willing to do this? Would you be willing to, like, run a mile? Would you be willing to murder your family? And then they would inevitably do it because that's how bad they want a Klondike bar.
2: Oh, okay. And,
1: uh, yeah. And then uh, we 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 are doing that right here right now because uh, Russ Wooten has nothing to do with the clan except for the fact that I occasionally say "ain't no clan like Wooton clan." Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> that was there a was long some...
0: way of explaining a
1: joke. <laughs> yeah, that one had layers. There yeah, was it uh, did, man. that one was an onion.
0: so here we are with volume 11 volume 11 collects issues 49 to 52 and the trade paperback was originally released in june of 2022 before we get on with our issue by issue breakdown and commentary i do have a report for you albert because uh it's been the hashtag remandier for our podcast, where we've read various other Rick Remender comics. And this one isn't technically a Rick Remender comic I read, but I did read another Wes Craig comic earlier this week, just so I could shout it out. I read Kaya Volume 1, which was written and drawn by Wes Craig. Have you heard of Kaya? It's a more recent image series that he's doing by himself.
1: I have i've seen it i've uh, seen occasional issues I've had the opportunity to pick it up in various discount bins. I was very intrigued, I was very tempted by it, but I think I just told myself I've already got so much i can't I can't do this to myself. I have a family, I have a wife, I have children that love me. I can't deny them my greatness because what's going to happen if I just entomb myself in my comics <laughs> They
2: need me! <laughs>
0: <laughs> but yeah, I read the first volume of Kaya. I think that collects the first five or six issues. I can't remember exactly. I borrowed it from the library. Kaya is actually an all-ages book. It's a fantasy story about, uh, I guess, a teenage girl or, or just a younger teenage girl uh, in a fantasy world. She's got like this mysterious metal arm and she's escorting her younger brother who's i guess probably like an eight or ten year old uh basically trying to escort him across a hostile land to get to wherever they need to get to and along the way they encounter lizard men and other giant monsters it's a lot of fun it's very different from something like deadly class I think the beauty of Kaya is that Wes Craig, as an artist, he does some really gorgeous landscapes in there. Um, it's, it's really imaginative, imaginative in terms of his world building, creating sets and scenery and designs for beast men and other creatures and monsters. It's just a fun book to look at. Compared to something like Deadly Class, I would say it's not as experimental. Like in Deadly Class, you know, he does these things various times we've seen throughout the run. He'll do spreads that kind of like break the flow of time or just, you know, just something that really trips pe- trips us up in terms of being almost a psychedelic experience. But in Kaya, it's pretty straightforward. Maybe... Maybe because it's intended for like all ages. He didn't want to do anything that could have been too confusing for younger readers. I don't know. I'm just theorizing here. But it it's still very easy to read. It's a fun book to read. And it's just beautiful to look at. If you like straight-up fantasy, it's definitely worth checking out. It's still an ongoing series. So I, I don't know exactly what issue they're on at the moment. I think Volume 2 might have just come out recently, though.
1: Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I the art is definitely one of those things is one of the elements of it that sticks out to me the most and um I haven't had a chance to read it like I said I do hope one day when I finally am able to rise from the ashes of all of the comic books that I'm drowning under that I will be able to read it and it, it is definitely on my list and I'm looking forward to checking that out and Heck, if I don't get to it, there's a good chance that they'll release a hardcover edition of it at some point, and I may just go in on it when that comes out just to just to be able to enjoy it in larger dimensions, so yeah,
0: yeah, definitely, that, yeah, I feel like that's a book that you would probably enjoy more if you were reading it physically as opposed to digitally, just because it's fun to like have that. Feeling it's it's almost like a storybook I think Um, just because it's the way it's colored I I'd have to check the credits but I want to say Wes Craig might have colored it himself I can't remember off the top of my head but it's almost got this watercolor style to it and you know I'm sure it'd still look great on a on a tablet but I'm just thinking if you enjoy that kind of storybook feel it's like the kind of thing that you can read to your kids you know like just enjoy all the pictures together and have that tactile sensation of holding a physical book getting the satisfaction of knowing that a tree died for your personal entertainment
1: (laughs) right right yeah (laughs) yeah yeah i i agree like um we we are older relics of a time that is slowly or quickly rather coming to an end (laughs) um everybody else is reading things if reading at all on their devices and here we are looking at cave paintings and chicken scratch on on walls and we're just over here going ooga booga terrified of fire and change you know <laughs> we're just really making uh we're making a lasting impression on the world
0: <laughs> yeah yeah we're the luddites of the comic book podcasting community
1: mm, mm, mm. All right, well, that's good. Well, okay, I guess if we're going to do a discussion on our Remind year hashtag, it's worth noting that I got back from Las Vegas and Maine, or mostly I got back from Maine this past two weeks ago, uh, and I did bring a bunch of comics with me. Tonight, I just met up with Drew. I finally was able to give him all of the stuff that I've been hoarding for him for the past month, couple of months at this point. So that was good, giving him all his stuff and uh, kind of clearing my plate. But in addition to that, I did find some stuff for me. And while I was out there, I found the issues of The Atom. The Atom. Up and Atom by <laughs> Rick Remender. So that I think that very much fits our Remendier hashtag, our hashtag Remendier, and I, I've never read this. Uh, this was the era where the Adam was a new character. His name was Ryan Choi, and I never read Asian really brother. That. He was an Asian brother, exactly. So I had to, it was Rick Remender, and it was an Asian as the main character, so I had to read this book. Mm-hmm. I had to get this, these issues, because it was Five issues, it was all of it. And it was all of the issues that he had done for the Atom. So I'd never read it. I was looking forward to checking it out. And now I have it. So I'll read it as soon as possible, hopefully before the end of the year. And then I will post about it and add it to the hashtag, hashtag Remindier.
0: Do you remember who the artist on those Atom issues was?
1: I don't. I don't have it in front of me. It's like in a pile somewhere. But, yeah, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I do not remember who the artist on that was, but I will be sure to include it when I make the post on our Instagram.
0: I'm looking forward to it, man. Looking forward yeah. to hearing what you think about it. I don't think I read that either. I remember I did find one or two of the issues many, many years ago in a discount bin, but I think I just gave up on it because like so many years had passed and I never came across it. So mm-hmm. it was just something that I thought I would never probably read but now that you got it all i'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts
1: nice nice yeah and it's not even that long i think it's just like five issues long so that's like one trade tops yeah yeah and then i'm after not him, sure if
0: they ever made a trade of that run that's true that story that's
1: true. after him the series came to a close they ended the series so oh, okay. you know uh, <laughs> i guess they went out on a good note they got yeah. Rick Reminder to write it, so sure.
0: Is Ryan Choi still active in the DC universe at all?
1: I feel like that series came out before the new 52. So once the new 52 hit, it reset everything. So, you know, whenever there's a multi universal, multi dimensional crisis, one of the things that happens is it resets all the main characters back to white. <laughs> okay. That's not one of the consequences of a (laughs) multiversal catastrophe? Am I imagining that?
0: (laughs) No, you're not imagining it. That's just not where I was expecting you to take the conversation.
1: (laughs) All right. You have anything else to say, or do you want to get into it? Let's get into Deadly Class, Volume 11. Let's start off with Issue 49. All right. Deadly Class, Volume 11, A Fond Farewell, Part 1, Issue 49. Saya's brother keeps tabs on her as he watches her descent into self-destruction. His his grand plan is to destroy her at her moment of greatest emotional despair. It is 2001. Marcus detoxes Saya over the course of days and weeks, revisiting old feelings he has he has had towards her. Later down the line, the two spend time at a cafe conversing about their old friends, opening up a greater conversation about the nature of relationships. Over the co- over the course of time, the conversation leads the two into having wild, passionate. I got to turn the page to see what I wrote. Sex. That's what it was. It was wild, passionate <laughs> sex. Um... <laughs> that was a funny and... page turn. And as we observe the room, we find a hidden camera and learn that Kenji has hired Marcus to sex Saya up for her greatest fall. Oh, wait. That's set Saya up for her greatest fall. My T looks like an X. (laughs) I mean, I guess he hired her to sex her up, too. The funny thing is, that was totally unintentional. I was like such, in such a hurry and writing my notes that it literally looks like to set Saya up, but it's it set. It's totally set Saya up for her greatest fall.
0: See, that's how you know we truly are the Luddites of the comic book podcasting community because Albert still writes his notes with a pencil on a piece of paper.
1: <laughs> yeah. So this issue, I mean, even though my description of it seems pretty brief and pretty short. I think there's certainly a lot of emotional content that's available for us to go over here. So I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on what you read.
0: Well, starting from the opening scene where we have Kenji sitting in his tower talking to his, I guess his highest ranking henchman, about the nature of his revenge. There's something amusing about it. He's plotting his revenge, but it has to be artful, you know? It has to be artistic revenge. He has to get her at her greatest moment of emotional despair, and he wants her to know that it's him causing her suffering and ending her. Like, that's important to him. Like, it's not enough just to... He wouldn't be satisfied if she was just walking down an alley and somebody put a bullet in the back of her head when she had her back turned, you know, like there's got Mm -hmm. to be real hatred felt in the moment, you know, a recognition that her brother was the one who orchestrated her downfall. And there's, I don't know, there's just something deliciously evil about that. That's the kind of, it's like a modern day take on the cackling villain who, twirls his Pringles mustache, you know? Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I don't think... You're right to call it a modern-day take because it's not so... It's flamboyant, and it's over the top, but it's not so one-dimensional or corny or cheesy either. Like, it's, it's weird how he's talking about how his plan for revenge has to be this grand work of art in order to maximize the emotional pain that she feels before he strikes the killing blow, right? But yeah. in discussing it as this work of art, this entire bit of theater that he's putting on as he's discussing it is in itself just this grand, elaborate um, play that he's putting on for no one but us, really. You yeah, know? exactly. His own personal
0: <laughs> satisfaction. He yeah, says, Yeah, but I want art. My sister's death must be legendarily cruel. Like one of those European fairy tales. She must be blindsided at a moment of hopefulness, clean and sober, with eyes wide open. Then we tear her down fresh. It's yeah, that's some pretty amusing dramatic dialogue right there.
1: Yeah, yeah. And um, you know, we've talked about it before in the past, but Kenji is his it's one of the dangling plot lines of the previous uh volumes. So we're expecting that whatever happens between them is going to be epic, right? This mm-hmm. this entire story has built up to – they've introduced a bunch of villains over the course of the these 11 volumes. And he is one of the final bosses that we're going to have to get through before we get to the final, final boss, whoever it may be. Mm-hmm. Okay, and yeah, I don't know what your expectations were, but it feels like okay. Um, whatever, however it ends, it's going to be action packed and bloody, and it's going to be equally as grand, probably as grand as his vision for his revenge for her, right? Because in these types of stories, what's more powerful than the uh, pinnacle of that moment when the two most hated adversaries finally meet for the final showdown, right? Right, right. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, we get another one of those two-page spreads that tells us the year, and it's 2001. We've got an image of Osama bin Laden, and then we cut back to Saya and Marcus, and we get to that scene that you described where... She's basically going cold turkey to try and detox herself from all the addictions she's been living with, and Marcus is helping her through it. But as Marcus uh, helps her through all that, we get this montage that gives us a chance to gain more of his interiority as he reflects on their relationship. So there's some good, insightful uh, narration from Marcus's point of view as we see him helping her through these dark times. And it's interesting because it's almost like seeing them grow up, or at least Marcus. Well, no, I would even say both of them. Yeah, like it it really does feel like a scene where where they're growing up, except, um, you know, all the imagery is with her, shivering and sweating in bed or puking and Marcus trying to do what he can to to watch over her or help her out but it's almost like this scene of a couple just helping each other go through life together and then at the end she takes a shower and her walking out of the shower just symbolizes this fresh start for her you know at this point apparently she's been able to conquer her demons and uh, go out into society. So Marcus helps her out and you know hands her jacket, and then they go over to to the diner, to the Lucky Penny. Tristan Power, Lucky Penny.
1: Yeah, that we place I'll always remember you. <laughs>
0: mhm. But yeah, I I did like the scene where she's just struggling uh, through her her detox period and. Marcus is helping her like the way that the coloring is handled especially when you look at that first splash page right it's like this two page spread where there's one vertical uh one horizontal panel on top and then two vertical columns with three panels each uh but that top horizontally laid panel is intense man cuz it's just this picture of Saya curled up in like what's almost the fetal position and she's covered in blankets on her bed, but like, she's sweating like profusely. And then the way that the background is drawn, it's just all these angry looking lines, you know, you can just see the chaos and the turmoil and the struggle of it all. It's, it's really intense. I think that's a a great piece of drawing right there. Mm -hmm. Really, really gives you, um, just the sense of how difficult it is but then when you when you read the accompanying captions it's just Marcus reflecting on his relationship with her right like he's thinking about how uh she was she was the first girl he ever loved and you know watching her go through all this it it's it's incredibly difficult and he talks about or thinks about how She was the strongest person that he ever knew, but he's just realized that life is a series of disillusionments and, you know, the things that he thought were strong were revealed to be weak, you know, thinking that Saya was the strongest person he knew, but now it's not the case anymore, you know? Like, it's it's just so tough. Like, there's a lot of... I feel like there's double meanings in in everything that he's thinking right through this scene because... Yeah, it pairs well with the with the visuals of the scene of her detoxing, but then there's like also a a double a secondary meeting, you know, like of him reflecting on on how things were and I feel like this whole volume has really shown me what Deadly Class is turning out to become mm-hmm. because when it starts out when the series began it it seemed kind of straightforward, like it would just be this story about youth and rebellion. These kids are in a school for deadly assassins, and they're probably going to rebel against their taskmasters, against Master Lin, and then go strike out on their own. Maybe even do something relatively heroic or somewhat noble. You know, they would be overthrowing the status quo. That That's yeah. what I thought it was going to become a story about. But with the previous volume, and then now, especially with this volume, I'm starting to see that it's becoming a lot more introspective. I mean, the series has always had its introspective moments, but now it really feels like all of the stuff we imagined at the beginning about a gigantic brawl happening at the school, kids fighting adults and all that. We saw a flashback of that in the last volume, but now it's starting to become this introspective meditation about growing up and moving on with life. And we we start to see that right here in issue uh, 49 with Marcus and Sai. And then later on in the subsequent issues, we see that even more.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We talked about this a little bit during our mic check. And in retrospect, I think we had some pretty good stuff there. I don't know if it's, if it's <laughs> stuff that people are necessarily going to hear, which is kind of a shame, but I'll try my best to recreate what we said over over in the mic check, which was, I just feel like it's the kind of comic where, especially now that we're coming to the end of it, and we know that we're coming to the end of it, we're getting a more clearly defined picture of what the comic is, right? And mm-hmm. I think when we first enter the series going into it, like you said, it feels pretty straightforward. It feels like, It's going to be a story about these kids taking on, going to a school for assassins, dealing with the danger, life-threatening danger around every corner. And then we, I think we both assumed that it would culminate with a final showdown at the end of the school. And the fact that they made the choice to play that much earlier and with much less attention to it almost as an afterthought so that you can just have it have the final battle just kind of be a moment in time so that we can move on to whatever the real main point of the story is for Rick Remender and and Mm. Wes Craig and I think that's what we're getting here is that's what we're seeing is that it's it's like for a lot of people where again if you look at the story of these characters as a story where um they are just living they are just normal human beings experiencing normal emotions but just filtered through the context of a prism of a deadly assassin school and what that looks like yeah Um, we're looking through the looking glass at that point to what do these moments that seem so huge to them in the past look like to them as they get older? And we see, and I think that's something that we can all identify with as we get older, because I think it's a very common thing for a lot of young people and teenagers to think that whatever bad thing happens in the moment right then and right now is the worst thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. And nobody on this planet will ever understand it or feel the way that you do in that moment. And then Mm -hmm. for us to like age out of that and reflect and look back on it and just see almost just how trivial and how silly it all was. But for these kids, the thing that they look back at as a triviality is, you know, a final brawl at the end of the school where everybody dies or a whole lot of people die. But I think the, the logic still applies to it, which is, what is it like for, I mean, if you kind of step back from the notion that the most important thing here is the assassin's school part and just look at it as a story of this person as he ages and how he views his life in the rear view mirror, that's what we get. And I think that's a very universal feeling, even though maybe mm-hmm. we might not be able to understand it fully because Who of us has gone to an assassin school? And I think the the one thing that we were discussing in the mic check was it's the sort of play or it's the sort of writing decision on the part of Rick Remender where if someone was to call this a bait and switch, I think that that would be a fair uh, description of what happens or or what is happening in this story, but I think it's the best possible version of a bait-and-switch possible, because... It's a good trick. It's a good trick, exactly. They have enticed us to come in with the spectacle and the violence and the action of it all, but then, towards the end, they've switched it out for something far more introspective, far more valuable, far more meaningful, and I think we can... I think a serious reader would be able to look at that and appreciate that, whereas mm-hmm. it would not surprise me at all if there were people out there who looked at that and went, what, a, what sort of trick is this? I was expecting yeah. a huge battle at the end with all the forces of evil versus all the forces of good culminating <laughs> in one shall live and one shall die. <laughs> Only one shall remain. <laughs> Why are people such chumps?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man.
1: But yeah, it's it's a good kind of bait and switch. It's the kind of subversion of our expectations that we should welcome. And unfortunately, I don't know that many people would see it that way.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure what the general reception to the series has been cuz I've I've largely no, I've pretty much stayed away from going online and looking up what people had to say about deadly class. Just so when we have our conversations, they can be purely our own thoughts, you know, without any influence from other people. It's like the only time I've ever had any indication of uh, other other people's thoughts on it is if, you know... People might comment on one of our posts or something, but for the most part, it's not like I'm going on Reddit asking for people's opinions, or I'm not typing up, uh, looking up reviews on the series or anything. So, yeah, I don't really know.
1: Yeah, yeah. So there's I this. I guess you're saying there's a huge chance that my uh, expectation of humanity could be completely off, and for all I know, for all I know, they welcomed this with open arms. And I'm the wrong one for expecting them to poo-poo it.
0: Hey, anything is possible if you have the power of childish imagination. That's
1: true. That's true. Kevin Garnett taught us that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but as you were describing the masterful bait-and-switch, I was thinking about this quote I heard from Chuck D., the rapper from Public Enemy. You know, I don't know... what. What program he was on, but I heard a clip of him in a, doing an interview where um, someone was asking him about rappers that he liked or respected, and he uh, he name checked a few, like he he mentioned uh, Jada Kiss and Buckshot and Substantial, and those are guys. I like Substantial a lot. I don't really listen to the other guys too much. But the other thing that Chuck D was saying about those guys was that they're they're scientists, man. They're craftsmen. You know, that's what he's looking for when it comes to quality MCs. He wants scientists, craftsmen who know how to piece things together. And it just made me think of this comic because Rick Remender, man, he's a scientist, dude. He's a craftsman. Wes Craig, a scientist, man. Another craftsman yeah. right there. So it, it, you can really see how these guys put a story together. They're able to tell a story and weave it in a way that you don't often see um, in in comics, you know? Like, this is something that's it's different. It's got its own voice. It's creative. It's fresh. And you can't really imagine, like, a typical, like, another guy. Like, <clears throat> imagine some jobber writer or artist teaming up and doing this story it, it would not turn out like this you know a school for assassins like imagine if, yeah. if you had like scott Lobdell or jeff johns writing that it it would not be like this at all you know exactly exactly
1: if they did it they would basically do it in the most obvious way that you would expect just the most paint by numbers kind of story that you would expect from them mm-hmm. there would be Maybe there'd be differences in minor things or differences in plot here and there, but for the most part, I don't foresee them doing anything nearly as profound inventive. or, or profound. inventive or, you know, introspective as what Rick Remender is doing here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. At most, you you maybe Geoff Johns will give you a line here or there that indicates that he's thinking about um something more than just how are we going to beat up master lin and <laughs> how are we going to get our crew together you know it's yeah
0: silly stuff like it, there's it really a specific is. page another specific page that i want to point to that that highlights how the the entire creative team their scientists when i'm looking at page 11 on the digital version that's the scene where Saya is in the shower and she's getting out of the shower. Uh, So when you look at the the page, the top half of the page, it's her in the shower. And then the second on the right side, um, it's her in a towel coming out of the shower. But that first column, there's three panels, but they basically just cover the same image, except it's, you know, chopped up into into panels. It's just her in the shower. Um, And... This is a page where Wes Craig does that thing he likes to do with negative space and leaves room on the side in yeah just room on the side on the white side of the of the page for Rick Remender's writing and you have Marcus's narration coming down on the left side column it's kind of reminds me of something like Bendis would do like Bendis and Alex Malieve or Bendis and Michael Gatos or something where they're, they're confident in their storytelling abilities to not be afraid to use a lot of words and just have them come down on the left side space, which would other, otherwise simply just be, you know, blank. But the way that this scene plays out is you have, like, Marcus saying, or I guess narrating a few things on the on the white space, but then, like, there's, like, in each panel there's one part of it where there's a line or two of his narration and it's poetic, man. Like it, it, it's, it's almost like poetry in the sense that you get this sequence where, uh, he'll Mm -hmm. narrate something. And then, uh, like the first part, it says, part of me wants to take blame for her circumstances. And then inset inside the panel, it says, part of me might be right. And then, Later on, it says, but if she could have ended up here, she always could have ended up here with or without my involvement in my life. And then inset within the panel it says, the truth is I miss her. And then the next one, it ends with a line that says, it's more than just nostalgia. And then inset in the panel, it says, she's hardwired into my firmware. There's like this call and response, almost sing song quality to it. And when I looked at that, I was wondering like why did it why didn't they just put all of the text on the left side? You know, they, they took the extra step of having Russ Wooten letter that inside the panels, like each of those lines. That's interesting, man. It it really highlights the writing without being too showy. But when you when you examine it, man, that's what makes them scientists, dude. They mm. figured out the form of comics and, and they're able to do something with it that you can't really do too easily in any other medium.
1: Well done. Well said. It's such a subtle thing. And if you don't think about it, you could very easily miss it. But that's why Drew that's why Drew has a podcast. That's why we have him here to notice <laughs> these things, to pick up on these things. And, you know process them and regurgitate them and baby bird them into your mind into your mouth ears so that you can think about them so if you're reading this book pay cl- extra close attention to that
0: see when it comes to between the gutters I'm more like the Chuck D of the group and Albert's like Flava Flave.
1: yeah I'm a washed up hobo who has a giant clock around his neck <laughs>
0: You got the flavor of love, dude. Don't sell yourself short. (laughs)
1: Um, One of the scenes that takes up a lot of space within the book, it's one, two, three, four, five, six, about six pages within this one issue, is the scene at Lucky Penny when they're at the cafe and they're talking. Maybe even seven pages if you include the opening shot where it shows the Lucky Penny and them sitting in their booth. and it is just a bunch of pages of them sitting in the booth and having this conversation with each other. But what they have to say is, although it's not a lot, I think it's deeply meaningful Mm. because it's, it's conversation that it's a conversation that broken old people have, which is you talk about life, you talk about where you are now and you talk about like where things have gone in the past. And I don't know, maybe it's just part of getting older where all you kind of do is ruminate and dwell on these things, uh, these mistakes that you've you've had. And there's just so much of it within these panels. And at one point while they're talking about, um, you know, these old friends and old feelings that they used to have towards each other, uh, Saya is talking about, you know, her old friends. And she looks over and in the booth... She envisions seeing um Billy and Willie just messing mm-hmm. around just as kids as they forever were in her mind. And yeah, man, it's 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 kind of touching and it's kind of heartbreaking at the same time. And it just leads them to it just leads these two broken souls to like for a brief moment to feel something again, and it just leads them to to hook up but that entire lead up to that scene was some really sad and emotional stuff
0: yeah it really was it's like part of it is marcus reflecting on the follies of youth and and then he also kind of sardonically appreciates how much he's matured in the years since then not only do they reminisce about you know the the friends that they lost when they were kids like Willie and Billy, but they also talk about their successful enemies like uh, Brandy Lynn. Mm -hmm. And it is a scene that definitely has that kind of old man energy to it because it, it reminds me of how when we get together with old friends from high school or old friends from college or from whatever other stage in life, When you reunite with a certain group of people, one of the go-to topics of conversation is usually, hey, what happened to so-and-so? Or do you remember that person? Or what's this person doing nowadays? Yeah. You always think about your old friends or your old classmates. And the funny thing is, is this scene gave me this incredibly vivid memory of uh, hanging out with our buddy Eric. This was maybe like 15 years ago now, but... It was just him and me that night, and we were hanging out. And for I don't know why we did this, but we dug out our old high school yearbook. We we went to the same high school, and we just went through everybody in our class pointing out, oh, I hated this guy. This person sucked. (laughs) I hated him.
1: (laughs) We just went through the yearbook pointing out all the people we hate. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But on the flip, I mean... (laughs) I've, I've certainly had moments like that where, you know, catching up with people, you kind of talk about the jerks in your lives. But on the flip side of that, there's also, and this is something that we see in the book as well, but just the idea of, you know, there's that moment of shock sometimes where you talk about like people that you knew, whether you knew them well or you didn't, they were still at one point or another a fixture in your life. And I don't know, like I, I, a couple of months back, I, I met with um, a couple of my high school friends and we talked about it and, you know, certain names come up, certain faces, they're they're all kind of vague and kind of fuzzy to me. But, you know, when you find out that someone died or someone's just not doing quite so well in life, um, there's there's that moment of shock because... I think in our mind we're always living in the present and there's a delusional part of every human that thinks that, you know, your life is going to go on Mm -hmm. a certain way forever. So when you realize that, oh yeah, um, there are some people who just didn't make it out of high school in a good way or didn't make it into uh, adulthood in a good way. um, There's something that kind of, Weighs on you when you find that out. Even I don't know about you, but even if I didn't know that person super well, there's there is some part of you that just realizes that oh, not everybody made it. <laughs> it's just yeah. yeah, it can be kind of sad. That's true. Yeah, yeah. And this this scene totally smacks of that. Totally smacks of that.
0: Yeah. Even the minimalistic coloring and the staging and everything. Yeah. There's just something so. Uh, intentionally paced about it you know it's like it's just them sitting in their booth at the restaurant yeah and there aren't any fancy tricks with the camera angles or anything like that it's pretty much just the same angle throughout their conversation maybe a couple close-ups here and there yeah but they're just lit by the the setting sun i i suppose you know and like the, yeah. the colors are simple and they're just moody and impressionistic and it's almost like by the time you get closer to the end of the conversation, we don't even see the the window or the table or anything in the booth. It's just the two of
1: their two people talking
0: to each other. Yeah, just their faces and in, in profile yeah. Yeah. as they keep on talking. But like, there's moments within that conversation where you know they're just sitting across each other from a table, but at the same time, the way that some of those close-ups work, it makes them look so distant from each other too.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I look at the last page of that six or seven page sequence where they're talking, where they're having this prolonged conversation. And I don't know if it's necessarily hostile, but it's, there's again, there's something sad about the way that they're talking to each other. And these are two young people who have grown old in the world and they're just trying to connect with each other and it ends with her talking about how he's cynical and how his cynicism bores her. Mm-hmm. And then they go a little bit further and they just have this one moment where she says, um, "Where she says, uh, what does she say? Which means I'm not going to lie or sugarcoat no matter if you want to shit on it or not. Um, once we love someone, they become a part of us. We carry with the, them with us forever, right? Yeah. And it's it just jumps from her saying that to Marcus's face, and it's a close-up. And it just feels like they're so broken in this world that in this one moment, they're just reaching, grasping for this one thing, no matter how little it is. Mm-hmm. And when you turn the page... They're just mad humping each other, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Like Because it's such a cold and cruel place, this world that they live in, that even something as little as that acknowledgement that, oh, we once loved each other, and if we once loved each other, that means we're always part of each other. That in and of itself is enough for them to just give them any reason, anything to feel something.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Why
0: should you have to point a gun at him while they're doing it though, man?
1: <laughs> I don't know. Some people <laughs> like it rough. <laughs> I I I can't explain it. I don't have the words for it, man. <laughs> I am not a psychiatrist. I never proclaim to be one. Uh at best, I'm just someone who's reading a comic and trying to extrapolate certain ideas from it. And that's just one of those things that I can't even touch with a 10-foot pole. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what about this one? Can you, can you explain why Kenji seems to be enjoying watching his sister having sex with Marcus?
1: <laughs> if you wanted the real... If I, if I was to give you the my sincere artistic interpretation of that moment, it's him watching his plan come into fruition as he knows that he has hired Marcus to do... he has hired to do which is to sex slash set her up (laughs) and and he knows that as the plan unfolds eventually it will lead to the moment where marcus will betray her and he will have his final win because you know he has found a way to turn his great her greatest love into her greatest hate
0: (laughs) (laughs) well said man well said
1: thank you thank you but if I had to uh, interpret it a different way, he's just a freaky perv. And like that, <laughs> he just, he's just got some weird, you know, family thing going on there that is just not even remotely close to beneath the surface. It is, it is just the scum floating atop the water at this point.
0: It's massively uncomfortable. And the funny thing yes. about it is that he has two henchmen who are just standing be- behind him. They're just watching him watch his sister
1: on the yeah, screen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you were powerful, I guess you could get anyone to do those things. Yeah. <laughs> you have to watch me and you can't leave the room. <laughs> no matter how heavy my breathing gets. <laughs> and I need you to maintain eye contact with me at all times.
0: <laughs> Taking it to the extreme there.
1: What did you think of that reveal, though? Were you surprised by it? Did you expect it?
0: I was surprised by it. I did not expect it. I think it was... There isn't really anything... I don't think there was anything in the book to indicate that Marcus was working for Kenji. I mean, I, Mm -hmm. I, I figured that there would be some kind of twist, but this is a pretty good twist. It's a good surprise. Like, I wasn't... I did not... Predict that coming, but I guess yeah. I also don't really I tend usually not to make those kinds of prognostications with my stories. I usually just read them and see what happens. yeah so I wasn't yeah. thinking about it too hard, but i was yeah, I was still taken by
1: surprise. I do think there are some things that indicate that there was a possibility for Marcus to turn heal like that because i think about it right Mm -hmm. and in the previous volume um we were getting these time skips as well and we saw that marcus kind of went from being uh you know a slacker and a hobo to at one point becoming this super master assassin right yeah, And they don't really explain what where the change occurs, but I think in my mind I read that as everyone goes through a phase in their 20s where, you know, they look at society and they rail against society and they think that, oh, um, everything's a cage meant to tie us down, meant to make us work a job or whatever, and – you know, we're the ones who are young. We're the ones who see the 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 prison for what it is, the prison of uh, material things that keep us tied into doing what we do every day. Mm-hmm. And then inevitably, as you get older and as you have more things and as you uh, have are become more invested in life, you go from having this sort of rebellious attitude to working a nine to five job to being a a company man. And I think that was one way to interpret what was going on in that time skip. So I think if I was to extrapolate that onto this last scene, it's the idea that he went from this rebel to becoming someone who is very much a person who would fall in line, who would do what he was supposed to do. And this is the... Extreme representation of that, which is him becoming the kind of person who would be such a proficient assassin. Everything that he hated, because eventually we all become our parents. (laughs) (laughs) And he eventually would become so jaded and so committed to his work that he would be willing, that we need to believe that he would be willing to take a contract from her brother so that he would betray her all in the name of pride in his work or money.
2: Mm.
0: Yeah, I don't
1: know if that's what they had intended, but that's how I read it.
0: No, I think that's a fair interpretation of the text. That makes sense. Mm. Mm. That actually really fits with the theme of the series in terms of how we've talked about how – it's this sort of coming of age story and it's about growing up and Mm -hmm. yeah, that all the stuff that you just described really is part of it. I think when we first began the series, I didn't, I didn't necessarily expect them to grow up into adulthood within the story, but because they, you know, that clearly has happened now. Yeah. What you said totally makes sense to me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a heck of a, a cliffhanger. Of, and a heck of a way to end the issue. So we can only see if he truly has lived long enough to become the villain or who knows what else. Mm-hmm. Alright, well, I guess if we've got nothing else, are you ready to move on to issue 50? Let's do it. Alright. Saya and Marcus go over plans to take over Kenji to take out Kenji and each plan just involves one of them massacring rooms full of foot soldiers this fo- they finally agree on a plan that utilizes explosives to direct the foot soldiers into an enclosed space where they will be massacred by marcus and saya not too complicated um <laughs> as saya retrieves her family sword marcus pulls a gun on her and reveals that he was hired by kenji to betray her but he's choosing not to carry out his contract, and that this hit was a chance for him to present her with a choice. <clears throat> she can choose her vengeance, or she can leave it all behind. Le- leave it all behind her and go with him and lead a new life, unburdened of their emotional bag- baggage and trauma. Marcus steps out to smoke a cigarette while awaiting a response. Upon returning, he finds his response in the form of Kenji's severed head. And a note, Marcus ponders the recent events and concludes that the entire exercise wasn't so much about him saving Saya, but more about Saya saving him.
0: Yeah, this was another issue with a good amount of action, whether real or imaginary. Within the story, but towards the end, definitely reaches that poignant type of storytelling that we've become accustomed to as well. Yeah, yeah. There's something kind of funny in the beginning about seeing these sort of fake action scenes where they're just imagining their plan, and it's just the most over the top, super violent full frontal assault (laughs) that you can imagine
1: yeah on some level for a story like this we've almost become accustomed to that level of violence we've become accustomed to the belief that our characters can almost do superhuman feats in order to survive whatever that it is that they're going through i mean we've talked about it multiple times over the course of this series uh that we've that we've done where we just talked about how some of their plans aren't very complicated at all and really just rely on them being able to kill everybody and that's just kind of it and we've also talked several times about how we have to suspend our level of disbelief just in order to believe that these kids are just good enough to just survive it, but I think it, this is something that just drives home the point that even though Reminder is giving action and violence to the people that want it that wanna that wanna follow the story for the action and violence, the action and violence are really the point here, you mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. like it's a means to an end it's it's something to get us. To the point where we can experience the drama, which is we, in the previous issue, we talked about how Kenji is one of the final bosses that the plot line has set up for us. So the expectation is that whatever showdown they have is going to be this huge thing. But in this issue, it's all played for, not necessarily laughs, but it's so quick. And over the top, that it almost feels like the action just doesn't matter. It's it's not important here, right? And when they finally get to Kenji, it's not about the final showdown. You're not going to see Saya and Kenji have a sword fight in the rain to see (laughs) who's going to finish the other off. Uh The drama the drama happens in the in the emotional drama. It's the choice that she has to make the decision to pursue this course of vengeance that has haunted her and ruined her this entire time or the decision to give it up and live her life and move on with it. Something that Marcus has been um, advocating for for issues now, you know, as mm-hmm. just kind of part of his new new worldview. So, Yeah. I think it's again, there it wouldn't surprise me if there are people who one of two things. Um either look at the action and are all they see is, you know, the action, the forest for the trees, or whatever that, that phrase is and right. and they're satisfied by it. Or there are people who aren't satisfied by the action because they feel like they deserve more they wanted a more epic showdown they wanted the action to be the thing that mattered and then there's also the third way that this is going which is what i presume me and drew are kind of representing here which is just this idea that the action just doesn't matter (laughs) and Mm -hmm. it really is about you know the emotional dilemma that saya is facing
0: yeah that's right and i would even say even for the people who really do desire the action there's still plenty of action in this specific issue there's a lot of it and it's just drawn really skillfully by wes craig the two little fake out scenes if you want to call it that that happen when Marcus and Saya are still discussing their plan and just kind of visualizing what will happen both of those imaginary fight scenes are really well done like those are the kind of things that you can just stare at and examine the sort of balletic movements in the figure work and the frenetic energy and violence of it all. It's its quite the spectacle. And then when they finally do enact the real plan. I don't know about you, but there was still a part of me that was wondering, wait, is this just another uh, fake out <laughs> sequence? <laughs> is it another fantasy? <laughs> is it another fantasy? Exactly. Yeah. And then yeah. after it went on for a while, I was like, okay, looks like this is the real thing now. But even that's still pretty wild where they get all these guys, all the goons in the stairwell, and it's just close quarters, crazy combat where they're where Saya's just slicing people up and everything. But you're right, there isn't really much drama within the action itself because you already know, you're confident, that Saya and Marcus are gonna make short work of these goons. There's no reason to believe these nameless foot soldiers have a chance to really stop them. Yeah, yeah. So the real drama is in... It it goes back to the cliffhanger at the end of issue 49. The drama is in, what is Marcus going to do? You're thinking, is Marcus actually working for Kenji straight up with no ulterior motives or anything? Is he really just going to kill saya for kenji's money or is there some kind of bigger plan at work and then when we finally get to the end we learn what it is and it's marcus giving saya a choice giving Mm -hmm. her a choice to walk away from revenge walk away from violence and all of the poisonous stuff that's messing up her life He gives her a choice to run away with him, basically, to live on the beach and be happy forever. They've got money. They'll be okay. They can just live their lives. Or she can give in and chase down that revenge, kill her brother, take over the syndicate, and as Marcus says, become everything you used to hate. Mm -hmm. And as he says it with a gun pointing at the back of her head, he says, ambition or happiness, Saya." Your choice. I'll give you a minute. Mm. That's a that's a very dramatic moment, and it it wasn't until I was looking at the book again, after reading it through, I was looking at it again and thinking, if he gives her if he gave her a choice to walk away or to chase down her revenge, and he gives. He, he gives her a minute while he's, you know, waiting outside the the door, smoking a cigarette. Wouldn't if she had made the choice to go away with him, wouldn't you just have not gone up the elevator? But like not there gone up Yeah, to, what do you mean? to go kill up to go kill Kenji, you know? Like why did she he's waiting outside the door of the elevator, right?
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: And I assume she went up the elevator or maybe just walked walked into the other room, the next room over to face Kenji. But if she wasn't going to chase her revenge, if she if she had chosen in that moment to pick happiness, if she had chosen to go to the beach with Marcus, mm-hmm. wouldn't she have just gone with him as he walked away? But the fact that she went to the other room, like, in that moment, we know what her choice is, right? Because Marcus is there leaning against the wall, having a cigarette, uh, giving us all of this moody and atmospheric narration. But at the end of the day, don't we just know? Doesn't Marcus know in his heart of hearts that she's just going to kill her brother because she walked into that room? There there's like no other reason for her to go into that room other than to kill her brother like what would she do would she go in there and like try to talk reason to him and forgive him or something like i, I felt like once she walked into that room once she turned away from from marcus like it was inevitable
2: mm,
1: mm. i mean part of me wants to say that it's all about dramatic tension and you know, that buildup. So, you know, it's, it's again, more theatrics, right. Uh, yeah. But for the sake of the reader, but yeah, like realistically speaking, if she had known what she was going to do, if if she was going to leave with him, she would have left with him right there. There would have been no reason for her, for him to like quote wait. Right. So the yeah. fact that he's waiting X amount of seconds I guess, I suppose, realistically speaking, the the second that you enter the door, there shouldn't be... Maybe you could make the argument that he shouldn't feel any sense of disappointment, but I think you could equally say that there, no matter what, there's a sense of hope that she won't choose to do what he believes she will inevitably do. Right, right. In that moment, by seeing it, it's It just heightens that sense of disappointment that at the end of it all, she did exactly what he knew that she would. And that's the tragedy of it is no matter what, e- even giving her the option, she ultimately just ended up doing what he knew when she could have been offered almost anything else to do, mm-hmm. you know? And you're right. maybe that's the thing that just makes it more tragic.
0: Yeah. So, uh-huh. Yeah. I agree. I mean, just the fact that just because it's got this inevitable feeling doesn't make it any less dramatic, I think. But you're right. There's definitely a sense of heightened theatricism or the, thea- the theatrical element right. here is is very high with Marcus ruminating and just leaning with his face partly in shadow and it's just very moody yeah it's it's impactful and i I think i think that is good writing even if even if on a practical level it's kind of weird that you could you as a reader would imagine i wonder if he's wondering what she's doing you know like if he still actually thinks that she is still trying to make her decision when... Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, just rereading it, it, it really does feel like she didn't really have to think too hard. She knew she wanted revenge, and she was going to get her revenge. Yeah. So be it. Yeah. yeah.
1: I Now I kind of want to ask about scenes like that. It Hearing you talk about this scene and... The way that it's artificially, almost artificially, set it itself up for a heightened sense of drama. Um, I. It reminds me of this scene from Star Trek Into Darkness, and this is like a criticism I've heard in in the past about that movie. I don't know. Uh-huh. If this is something that you remember, but um, there are people who who talk about the scene where uh, Benedict Cumberbatch says the says the line i am Khan and they do this shot that focuses on his face and like it's this big reveal but if you step outside of the moment it to some people it doesn't make sense because are they supposed to know who he is why why are they being so dramatic in that moment right because this is an alternate universe kirk doesn't know who khan is so why does why does he have to do this big dramatic pause why like why does any of that make sense? So the scene doesn't make sense. I, I don't know. Have you ever heard that criticism of uh, Into Darkness?
0: Uh, maybe. I feel like it's it sounds familiar. I think you you might have told me about it like mm. what years ago when we were thinking about that movie. Yeah, but, yeah. It's been a long time, and I right. I kind of remember the scene, but now that you brought it up, I would probably wanna rewatch it. I think well, my my take on that scene or my interpretation of it is that it it was shot in a or directed in a dramatic or theatrical fashion for the benefit of the viewers or of the exactly. audience. Not, exactly. It wasn't that the characters themselves, it wasn't that Chris Pine as Kirk uh was gonna be shocked by the uh, Yeah. Information exactly. because he didn't, exactly. like you said, he didn't know who Khan was. But yeah. we, as the audience, if we had any familiarity with the old Star Trek movies, then that would be, you know, kind of a it twist. Means or, yeah, exactly, it means something exactly. to us. Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
1: Right. But that's what I was kind of saying. Like I'm, I, like in terms of notes, it feels like it's the same sort of thing. Where I guess someone could look at this scene and say. What's with all the theatrics of it all? What's the point of it? Because realistically, maybe it doesn't make any sense. Because, you know, if everything inevitably happens the way that we expect it to, and, um, you know, there's, if everything plays out in a quote unquote realistic way, then the drama of it almost, it, it not only doesn't matter, it just doesn't make any sense. It just seems almost silly or whatever, right? But it's the it's the art of, like, storytelling is you set things up for dramatic reveal, and I just remember hearing that critique of Into Darkness and thinking that to myself, which was, it just seems like such a minor thing to, like, quibble about when it comes to the movie. Yeah. Granted, like, the people that didn't like that movie had a lot of different things to say, but to include it as if this was the thing that makes it you know bad or stupid or whatever it just it's not an argument that makes any sense to me like you're you're watching you're you're consuming this story that's inevitably going to have these various beats and realistically speaking a lot of things aren't necessarily going to m- mimic real life mm-hmm. but you know that's just how storytelling works sometimes, so it's it's lost on me that people would not get that.
0: <laughs> yeah. Same here. Yeah. That's a strange thing to get hung up over.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, it's silly. Anyways. Um I I thought of another question while we were discussing this issue, but mm-hmm. do you think this is the last we'll see of Saya?
2: Mm,
0: That's a good question. I suspect we will see her again at the end of the series. However, I would also say if we never see her again, this is an appropriate ending for her character arc. Mm Mm-hmm
1: yeah I was thinking about that I think initially there was a part of me that expected to see her again but the more I thought about it you know the more I thought about how you know this is a story about growing up and about people going their own way and just kind of the I guess the shame of of decisions made and consequences um there's a certain, again, there's that word, there's a certain drama and there's a certain tragedy, if it just ends this way, that's incredibly downbeat, but also very appropriate, where she is given the choice between between living, truly living her life and selling essentially selling her soul so that she can become that company man that i was talking to you about earlier the you know the nine-to-fiver the salary man uh, a supervisor who gets to you know use take a leak in a nicer bathroom or whatever right mm-hmm. um but yeah it just feels like in this moment Marcus and Saya are reconnecting and he is throwing her a lifeline and saying we don't have to be this thing and we can we can just like leave it all behind us and what ends up happening is she chooses to she chooses to get the company car she chooses to be you know another a uh, junior partner in whatever company she's in. And in this case, she's going to run the family business, whatever, right? Well, like, the terms are almost interchangeable. Whatever the term, the title may be, the point is she's chosen her ambition over her happiness because she thinks that's going to be real happiness for her. Mm-hmm. And if they never see each other again, it just feels it just almost, there's something about that that almost makes sense as an end to their story with each other, right?
2: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: But, yeah, I mean, I still think there's a high likelihood that we will see her again, um, you know, for however that final arc plays out, but I have more of a belief now than I did in the past that it's a possibility that this is just the way it ends with Saya. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That makes sense. I was also thinking about Marcus's internal monologue during the scene when Saya leaves him, and he's just leaning against the wall. like That whole sequence there, like you said, it it touches on that whole notion of becoming like a salary man or your typical cog in the machine and looking at that as what symbolizes adulthood in a way. Mm -hmm, mm
2: -hmm.
0: Whereas Marcus, he's deliberately and consciously chosen a path of not taking revenge Uh, I'm not sure why exactly he has a thing against taking revenge, even though he seems to be okay just killing a bunch of people.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Foot soldiers aren't people. They don't have souls, Drew. But when you kill one of them, there aren't consequences. You shouldn't feel any guilt for killing, you know, an NPC. They don't have children or families that realistically care about them (laughs) they're there to be killed drew (laughs) it's when you kill someone that you're emotionally invested in that's when it matters
0: (laughs) but yeah just thinking about what marcus is saying here i mean the the big thing when he's actually speaking to Saya and you have the the dialogue what he says to her is ambition or happiness Saya with the gun pointed at her head that's what he says and then in the next panel he says your choice i'll give you a minute but then after that he starts thinking for the benefit of the reader you know we're privy to his thoughts here and I feel like the stuff that Remender writes here in Marcus's head, it does feel like a c- continuation of a lot of the un- ongoing themes that we've seen throughout Deadly Class. And strangely enough, for some reason, I haven't fully pieced this together yet, uh, or in, in terms of like how to articulate this thought. So I'm just really speaking off the cuff here but marcus's thoughts here remind me of all the various conversations and scenes we've had in previous issues regarding artistic integrity and selling out you know just the idea of doing something that you love for the sake of the thing that you love or trying to monetize everything and really go into that hustle and grind and become big so you can make money and you know win if not claim a nice
1: car and a big house that you can flex on other people mm-hmm. you know because that's the thing that means anything is your ability to like diminish other people with your wealth
0: yeah cuz like yeah. here listen listen to Marx's words here. And then tell me if you can see these words in relation to those conversations about selling out and artistic integrity. Meteors impact leaving craters. What was once, what was once a smooth surface is scarred forever. And what's left of us now? Soldiers fighting in a war for dominance, a war for status, for ego, for nothing exhaustedly running a race started a million years ago by a younger person, a much different person to win a heart-shaped award to disprove every negative voice and when one singular desire drives us for so long, it can feel impossible to give up on it. You wake up every morning to the same voiceover. What are you fighting for? Do you still care about any of this? And I'll, I'll cut it off there, but just all of that dialogue and and even to the end of the episode or the end of the issue it, it really does remind me a lot of about a lot of the themes we've had in the book about growing up selling out being a youth in rebellion against the you know against adulthood as a concept and yeah maintaining one's integrity in a world that constantly seeks to crush it
2: yeah, yeah.
1: It's uh it's all like very it'll shake you to the core of yourself if you stop and think about it too much, right? Cuz mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong, um there's still very much a streak in me that looks at all of the crass commercialism of uh, of of this industry that we look at, right? Especially comics. Well, not especially comics, but for us, especially comics, because that's the thing that we focus on. But yeah. we look at that entire industry, and there's a lot there that we can look to as um, being virtuous, as works of art that are created by people who who have integrity, right? But then at the same time so much of it, so much of the industry itself is just polluted by the singular goal of you know, making money. Yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah. it's hard for us to ignore these things uh because it affects so much of what we enjoy we and and drew especially is someone who's of like familiar with this sort of thing because he pays attention to the the palace intrigue of it all all the stuff that happens behind the scenes whereas i i'm a little lazier than that so I, (laughs) i tend to just read my comics and i don't think i realize what's what i don't like until i see it right in front of me and i don't necessarily attribute it to anything other than Oh, that was just badly done or like this writer is bad or this writer is good, but there is a lot of stuff that goes into it. That are miles and miles above the decision making uh, in in the realm of the decision making. Mm -hmm. Far beyond what the writer themselves can and can't do so. Yeah, it's 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 a part of everything. It's in the DNA of everything is it just feels like once you create something um it isn't long after that the question of how do you make money of this and how out of this and how do you keep making money out of this it isn't long until that question begins to pop up and it begins to really affect how things are done and I don't know Realistically speaking, the second that the question of how does this affect the bottom line, line comes into play, uh, once it, that becomes the primary question that you ask yourself before you do anything, um, yeah, you've just kind of sold your soul a, a little bit. You've just, you know, degraded the the purity of whatever it is that you're making. So.
0: Yeah, it's almost like a critique about the intent or the emotions behind the artist creating the art. Like I think a lot of times, a lot of people, critics even, want to disassociate the artist from the actual art, meaning we critique the text in and of itself, and whatever the original creator might have intended his art to mean it it doesn't matter because we're just reading what we have you know we're we're just examining the text itself devoid of the outside context if we have to look beyond these pages for context then that's not important but then there are also there's also a method of criticism that involves looking at the context you know thinking about who created what and for what purpose and i do think that at least for me that that's something i care about because yeah. i knowing that somebody is a creep it does affect my ability to enjoy a piece of work to be honest you know it's that's just how yeah. it is and if i didn't know something about other some of the people maybe i could enjoy more stuff but i can't help it and yeah. it's not that I necessarily go out and do research on every single person I, whose work I enjoy, whether it's books or comics or music or, or whatever. It's just, you know, if something bad, if that person does something bad and makes the news, then I'm probably going to notice it. And yeah, it'll yeah, be tough for yeah. me to pretend I didn't hear that.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a... F- it's a hard line of distinction and I I think there are some people who find it easier to just not think about it and just purely focus on the the way that the work makes them feel yeah because you know maybe you can make the argument that there are some things that you should just enjoy in a vacuum so that you know you can critique it without all this other stuff but We I don't know we just don't live in that sort of a world and if like someone is an awful person in real life and they create this um, incredibly moving work of art it does taint it because all of a sudden none of that none of those sentiments mean anything anymore because um, anything you can't that trust I trust the thought,
0: sincerity of
1: it exactly anything that I could have thought was sincere about it is now just it's compromised. It's just, it's compromised it's man- it's manipulation is what it is mhm mm-hmm. and i just i just can't
0: <laughs> yeah um, so that's why when i look at that scene i'm looking at page 42 on the digital trade but that scene when marcus is leaning up against the wall just reading his dialogue like you can apply that to comics man like just think of think of comics when you hear these words what was once A smooth surface is scarred forever. Mm. And what's left of us us now? Soldiers fighting in a war for dominance, a war for status, for ego, for nothing.
1: (laughs) Yeah. That one line in particular um, where it talks about how, you know, we're all running a race that a younger man started much, much longer ago. Mm -hmm. And like how none of it really matters anymore. Like, I think it 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 kind of points to that idea of what happens when you make – when the very first piece of art that you create is probably the most sincerest form of whatever it is. But mm-hmm. then over time, it just becomes a copy of a copy of a copy, and as that goes by, it just loses all meaning, <laughs> and it just becomes nothing, essentially. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's – It hits hard. It hits hard.
0: It really does. It has heavy middle-aged man vibes. Like, (laughs) I know Marcus in the scene, he's probably, what, in his late 20s, maybe his early
1: 30s? Yeah, yeah, that's what I was presuming as well.
0: Yeah, but he feels like, it feels like his soul is much older, which is what makes me feel like we're getting a glimpse into Rick Remender himself here. Yeah. (laughs) It's
1: weird. Yeah, I believe it. Because Rick Remender is probably a little older than us. Yeah. Potentially, maybe not quite a decade, but maybe just under it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, well, I mean, I'm not quite there yet, but I, you know, I'm on the cusp of that. I see what it looks like, I can see it on the horizon, and it is not going to turn out well for me. But <laughs> you know when it hits, it is going to be it is going to be dark and foreboding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but I see it, and I know what he's talking about, and I can't help but like hear the those voices in the back of my head talking about <laughs> where my life is going to be. What it what am I going to think when I have to look back at my life and I have to consider, you know, um, yep. what I do and why I do it.
0: Yep, that's right.
1: (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, you got anything else, or you want to move on to issue fifty-one?
0: We can move on to issue fifty-one.
1: All right. In, okay, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this right, but I'll try my best. In Quintana Roo, Mexico, Marcus is on a job where the voice of Master Lin critiques his every move from beyond the grave. It is. 2005. Marcus kills his target, a cartel warlord who is cheating on his wife. He allows the lover, he allows the cartel warlord's lover to live, only to immediately have her bring attention to his presence. While dodging soldiers and bullets, Marcus runs into his benefactor, Maria. Maria reveals the plan, her plan, to take over her husband's cartel, but his soldiers refuse to recognize her authority. The two fight for their lives through the throngs of gunmen, re-establishing their, reestablishing their bonds with one another with every bullet they dodge. At the end of it, they escape on a raft together.
0: Sorry, I uh, just noticed I had written down something in my notes that was on the next page. In regards to issue fifty, that I forgot to ask you. Oh, okay. So, yeah, if you don't mind me going back to the end of issue fifty, the way that it ends, um, there's some intro- some more introspection for Marcus, and he's. It ends with a couple lines where he so- he says, uh, "I'm not here to save Saya. I'm trying to get her to save me." Hmm. What does that mean?
1: I think I think he talks about it a little in in that same like series of panels um but I think prior to that moment he talks about how he wants to make the change for himself but he's too afraid to to make the leap so So do you think he's
0: someone to... who actually wants to continue living for revenge?
1: Mm. I mean, I'd say his actions show that he's try. I mean, in spite of all the foot soldiers he killed, <laughs> I-, I mean, I guess you could tell yourself that he doesn't feel any personal animus to- towards those guys, so it's not revenge. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so when it comes to the one guy that truly wronged him, that's when his sense of grace and mercy kicks in, and he becomes... <laughs> High and mighty about his uh, for sense of forgiveness and <laughs> how he wants to, you know, uh, renounce revenge and violence in that specific scenario. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, you know, the 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 joking aside, the fact that he kills a hundred, hundreds or like dozens of these. Um, you know, for the better lack of a term, nobodies. Mm-hmm. um, Yeah, I, I think we can take on face value that he doesn't want to be part of this life. And if we look at the course of his life up to this point, this is something that he's been. This is something, an idea that he's been going back to for years since his high school days. Even though he. It, even though he's concluded not to renounce violence in its entirety, because again, he's still okay with killing people, but he he sets up these odd, almost arbitrary rules for himself. I remember when the battle at the school at King's Dominion was taking place, um when Stefan was about to kill Shabnam, he he like pulls rank on him, on Stefan, and he tells him we agreed, we're not going to kill any of the kids. We're only going after the staff. And even then, he tries to convince himself that it's for their own safety as much as it is for any sense of revenge, right? Because the reason he goes back to King's Dominion is if they escape, then they will forever be living with the threat of this school over their shoulders. Um, If they allow the school to continue to exist... It will continue to perpetuate the kind of people that live this kind of life that will continue to infect the world with this worldview of, you know, violence as the key to all of its problems, as a, as, as um, the belief that we need to build a future of tomorrow's most heinous most terrible people yeah um so again he convinces himself to go back to the school to like bring the walls down upon itself because in his mind that's the greater good but maybe he tells himself that it is not something he's doing out of anything as petty as vengeance mm. but yeah i i I mean he he did go to Saya and he he offers her this chance to renounce vengeance for the sake of this better life and I don't know I think I want to take it take that offer on face value I I want to believe that um that was his intention And that ultimately what ends up happening is what he says there in that moment at the end is that, yeah, in spite of it all, maybe he is a coward who can't help but revert to type when this is all over. And maybe by offering Saya this opportunity, he... Can use her as this guiding light that will allow him, you know, a path out of his own personal darkness. But I I don't know if I... I don't know. I'd have to really think about that some more.
0: Okay, so in practical terms, when he says, I'm trying to get her to save me, what could she have done for him to save him?
1: She could... I think if she had chosen not to kill Kenji and she had decided to go with him, it would give him a reason to, to exit this life, mm, right? Okay. And, and I think that's what he wanted. He presented her with this option so that he could see someone he could be with who would give him an incentive to leave and... They could just live an, on the beach... With their money and be happy. Yeah, exactly. Someone that can also be an inspiration to him because he can look at her and he can see, oh, it doesn't have to be all terrible. She chose uh, forgiveness. She chose mercy. And if she can do it, I can do it.
0: Yeah, okay. That makes a lot of sense. That That helps clear things up quite a bit. Thanks, man.
1: Well, now I'm curious. What did you think was going on?
0: I wasn't sure. That's why I had it just written in my notes. I was like, what do the final panels mean? Oh. <laughs> That's what I wrote in my notes. Okay.
1: <laughs> 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 all right, then. <laughs> uh, all all right. right.
0: So, yeah, moving on to issue 55, then. This one's another kind of action-heavy story. 51. 51, yes, 51. It's another action-heavy story. We're now in the year 2005, and it's a funny thing that Wes Craig decided to uh, do his spread for the year 2005, capturing the moment when Kanye West famously or infamously said, George Bush doesn't care about black people.
1: Yeah, that was... That gave me more questions than the final scene of the last issue cuz <laughs> I I didn't know exactly what that was supposed to signify. <laughs> Maybe that was just
0: the defining moment of 2005.
1: Yeah, perhaps it was. Anyways, go ahead.
0: No, that that definitely tickled me too. Like I yeah. don't know what I was expecting him to draw for 2005. But that moment, it definitely elicited a chuckle from me. Yeah,
1: yeah. Actually, what we were just talking about kind of bleeds into the beginning of this issue. Mm -hmm. Because when we start out the issue, Marcus is out there, and this is after Saya's left, after she's made her choice. And you would think, with all that talk, Marcus would have been done with the life after that right but we jumped to 2005 and he's still very much an assassin still killing people for money doing what he does and that's where we start out so i think logically speaking if we go back to that last line of how he needed saya to save him Mm -hmm. if he was strong enough if he was brave enough after after that thing with Saya, he would have led this whole other life. He would have been done with it, but instead, in two thousand five, he's still very much an assassin. He's still assassinating for money, you know.
0: Yeah, he assassins down the avenue.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> just
0: a little Wilco reference for all y'all. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but um, I, yeah, I think in my mind that just confirms that maybe he isn't brave enough to to make that leap on his own. And honestly, by the time we get to the end of this issue and, you know, a little bit of a spoiler, but by the time we get to the next issue, we see what happens when, like, what it is exactly that gets him to give that all up.
0: Yeah. You know? So.
2: And if anything,
0: it even kind of feels like at the beginning of this issue, he's even ever so slightly more unhinged because he's still talking to, we see him in his own mind talking to Master Lin while he's doing his infiltration and killing these NPC foot soldiers. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So it's like Master Lin is still a part of him inside his own
1: mind. See, that's an interesting thing too, because after we learned about what happened at the end of King's Dominion, here we are, we have gone X amount of issues and we haven't seen Master Lin. He even asked me at the end of that volume whether I believed Master Lin was actually dead or not. Um, And here we are now, and this is the first time we see him, and he's this mind ghost that talks to Marcus when he's on jobs. And this is the first time we see him, uh, and the capacity that we see him in. I still think there is a chance that Master Lin could be alive. Um, you know, for the sake of whatever Rick Remender is trying to communicate once he gets to the end of the series, there's still a possibility that he could tell a story uh, that he could bring Master Lin back, reveal that he's actually still alive, but that that is getting slimmer and slimmer. That that possibility, I'll I'll admit <laughs> that. Okay. But, okay. Um, I don't know. I'm I, I guess I'm kind of curious because it's such a stark decision to like bring Master Lin back in that way. I I, I did you wonder at all why 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 now why here? <laughs>
0: I guess I just assumed the last few years have been even rougher on him because in the previous issues, we didn't really get an indication that he was having this imaginary Master Lin voice in his head. But now we not only get the voice, but we get a visual representation of him in the art. Mm. So it's it's almost like Marcus, the longer Marcus continues down this path, the more and more Master Lin... Gets proven that he was right about Marcus. Mm-hmm. That, like as far as much as yeah. Marcus wants to keep on running, keep uh, as much as he wants to keep on running away from King's Dominion and all the things that, all the philosophies and and the worldview that Master Lin was representative of, it, it seems like. Marcus can't really fully escape that as long as he continues to be an assassin, as long as he continues to keep on killing people with violence whether or not it's for revenge or simply because he needs money and it's his job. I guess it, it in a way that's immaterial because when it comes down to it, the fact that he's still an assassin just shows that Master Lin turned him into the perfect graduate mm. student of King's Dominion.
1: Yeah, yeah. Right. And it's, again, just going back to that last volume, like there is a period after King's Dominion where he just becomes this slacker. And we don't really see the moment where he just goes from being this slacker to you know a super assassin but when we see the time skip there is a change when that actually happens yeah and and maybe you can even say even when he was this slacker that was just bumming off the world even then he was still killing people for money so at the end of the day he didn't have any other skills to fall back on and that's just what he ended up being because he didn't know what else to do
0: yeah and that could kind of be representative, as well, of what is a common, you know, yeah. arc for a lot of people. You you graduate from it high is. school, you bum around for a bit. Maybe, maybe some people go to college, and yeah. you know, whatever it is after, after you finish the schooling that you intended to finish, then you kind of bum around for a bit. You're, yeah, you you take you're like trying to figure job. out what you want to do. Yeah, yeah you're you're just doing menial jobs because that's what's easy to get mm-hmm. and you're not really satisfied with it but eventually you you know you keep trying and or maybe you just develop a, a mindset where you decide you want to do something else or be more serious about working because yeah. that's part of being a responsible adult mm-hmm. and yeah and then you enter the workforce and you know you're it's it's not to say that whatever pizza delivery job or menial task you were doing before wasn't part of the workforce, but now you're you're trying to be, you know, one rung up the ladder, professionally yeah. speaking.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It It reminds me of people who, like, graduate, don't know what to do, and they just take whatever job, and they initially look at that job as, oh, this is just going to be something I'm going to do for a summer until, you know that other thing falls into place and I do what I really want to do. But then like 10 years passes and next thing you know, like that summer job that you took at a plastics factory or a paper factory or whatever ends up being your career. Mm. You know? Yeah. Uh, Because maybe because you didn't know what else to do. You didn't think you had any other skills for anything else. but, But that does seem to be the track that Marcus is on here where he again, it just goes back to that idea to like, to that idea that we all inevitably inevitably just become our parents. Right. Where um, he does this job when he's bumming around, he's just killing people just for, you know, drug money or whatever. And then years later, all of a sudden he's a super assassin, but You know, you got to remember that when he was at King's Dominion, his whole thing was, I'm trying to break this cycle so that we don't have a school that makes more assassins. And, you know, incidentally, I want to not be an assassin anymore. And all these years down the line, he is nothing but exactly what he didn't want to be.
2: Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah.
0: It's the painful irony of adulthood
2: yeah yeah
0: when you're a kid you can't wait to be an adult and when you're an adult you've just become what you never wanted to become
1: yeah the worst kind of adult yeah <laughs> uh, man if you didn't start drinking before you started this episode you should be drinking right about now <laughs> For you, for those of you listening to us <laughs> I
0: guarantee Woo. that all of our insights become even more impactful with every drink you take.
1: Yeah, yeah. You can turn it into a game. Uh, every You take a shot every time you have an existential crisis. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, but the thing about this issue is, I guess... After everything with Saya and, you know, all all these proclamations of how uh, she was his first love and this and that. This is the first time we see Maria after, after the last time, which was the cabin in the woods where mm-hmm. he catches her making out with this other dude. And I don't even remember if they revealed what he did to. What was his name? Stefano?
0: I think that was his name,
1: yeah, but but he got killed. is that Didn't, what i is that officially what happened to him
0: i I believe so, yeah, okay, Marcus, I think Marcus shot him,
1: okay, okay, yeah, so, so the last time we see him, they imply that he might have killed him, but we've I guess we've discovered that he did kill him, and that was the last time that him and Maria were together They're, they 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 were young lovers, they had their friction, they came back together, and for a second it seemed good. But then they broke up again, because, mm-hmm. you know, he was being a dick rag, and she just didn't like it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but when we see them, we learn that Maria was the one who hired him to assassinate her cheating cartel warlord husband. And it was all part of this plot for her to usurp dominance from the organization, you know, with his death. But instead, they end up fighting together, fighting back-to-back for survival, and they, like, run off on this raft. And while that's all happening, I, I presume that their feelings, or at least Marcus's feelings for her, come back to some degree. And they even talk about it a little, where they're just they are just this they are that on again off again couple that just seem to endlessly be in this cycle of getting together and breaking up, yeah, and yeah, and then by the end of this entire ordeal, they're floating away on a raft, and I think his last words are to her are something to the effect of "I'll never let you down again." I think that's what he said. I'd have to double check that. But, yeah. Yeah, he
0: says, I won't let you down again.
1: Yeah, yeah. I don't know. This this particular issue does have a lot of action. I I don't know if I really thought about it that much, other than as a story about how Marcus gets back together with his first serious girlfriend. Um, I suppose if you look at it in the context of what we just discussed about him and Saya, maybe there's a cynical way to look at it as
0: <laughs> you know you couldn't
1: be with Saya so it's time to go back to Maria. There's that, or you know there's the possibility that he was just in such a dark place that when maria Maria presented herself to him as this lifeline he offered it to her and you know due to circumstance or whatever they she ends up taking it and he finally gets the path out of the darkness that he's always looked for Hmm.
0: yeah i could see that too
1: yeah so i mean there's a way to look at this where it's like oh these two lovers like they were meant to be together, so even when they break up, they ultimately end up back together again anyways, because they have to. That's just their fate. But then there's also the idea that <laughs> he's just taking whatever whatever exit he can to get out of <laughs> his dire straits.
0: <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Yeah. One thing I want to comment on that I don't think I've mentioned yet is that during these this i guess these time skip era portions of the book, now that we've flashed forward into the future, the way that Wes Craig draws the characters aged up looks pretty dang good like you can tell that they look like who they were when they were kids, but you know they're
1: you can also tell that they've, they've grown, grown up. yeah Yeah. exactly you can see the age
0: yeah that's some good character design work
1: yeah and you know not to get too spoilery but when we get to the next issue i feel like you really see that even more Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. more pronounced but we can get to that when we get to issue 52
2: yeah yeah
1: speaking of If there's nothing else, I can go into issue 52.
0: Mm, Let me just check my notes real quick. Yeah, I don't have anything else.
1: Okay. It is 2006. Marcus works as a struggling writer while Maria is a nanny. They live in a small home. It's a humble existence, but they love each other. One day, while preparing a meal, Maria feels a debilitating pain that would cause her to drop her food. Over time, this pain would become much, much worse and it would affect their livelihood. But in spite of that, they vow never to return to their former lives. One evening with the pressure mounting, Marcus is tempted to return to the life. He comes to his senses and on June 6, 2006, he drives down to Santa Cruz with Maria meanwhile writing a letter to their future children about the life lessons that he's learned. Marcus then proposes to Maria and the two take what little money they have and throw together a wedding in Vegas. Tisawi, Zenzel and Helmet are, are in attendance. It is a time of great joy. In Pasadena, Stefan is now in a relationship. Using social media, he follows the shenanigans of his former friends during their wedding. He's happy to see them happy, but doesn't regret skipping the festivities. Some things are best left in the past. As he goes to check on his lover, he finds him shot on the ground. Shortly after, it is his turn. A figure clad in black checks Stefan's laptop before they disappear into the night. Yep. 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 So it really feels like we are entering that final phase. Um I think I think it's fair to say that all of the loose ends have been taken care of except for one and we're pretty confident we know who that one last loose end is going to be. Shabnam Yeah, that's right. Victor
0: he survived all these years man
1: he was a cyborg all along
0: (laughs) okay let me ask you this if shab if shabnam is not the killer at the end of the issue well no no let me let me go even farther, further than that If Shabnam never appears in the rest of the issues, would you feel unsatisfied?
1: No. I think at this point, I have enough faith in Rick Remender that if he chooses to do something like that, it's intentional and he's doing it for effect. So... If he chooses – and if it turns out that it's not Shabnam and, you know, he has some other reason for it being somebody else, then I'm open to seeing what it is because, you know, this is just one molecule in the entire strand of the entirety of the work of Deadly Class. So he has a vision. He has – something that he's trying to communicate. So he also has my trust and my faith that whatever it is he's going to do okay, um, okay. is a part of his greater overall messaging. So, yeah, I I, I wouldn't be – I don't think I'd be upset if it wasn't Shabnim.
2: Okay, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, I suppose, technically speaking, we do have two major – antagonist left but i imagine that they're going to be bound to each other in one way or another or or at the very least by the time we get to the end uh the final volume we're going to see what exactly happens to them
0: brandy lynn becomes president of the united states of
1: america yeah that would not surprise me (laughs) (laughs) like honestly speaking if that ends up being the thing um yeah here's here's another thought that i had um but i don't remember what year this series actually came to an end but it'd be kind of interesting if the very last chapter of this book ends on that present year that'd be Mm. that would be quite a statement on modernity
0: (laughs) yeah yeah it would be it would be i'm checking the release dates and issue 56 the final issue was released in october of 2022
1: yeah it'll be interesting to see if the very last issue takes place in 2022
0: yeah i guess we shall find out yeah But rewinding a bit to the beginning of issue 52, this was one of my favorite issues of, I don't know if, I'd say it's my favorite issue of the whole flash forward era, but it's, it's definitely high up there. I really liked this issue in particular quite a bit. We're back in San Francisco and it starts with Marcus just reading Catcher in the Rye on a Muni bus in Potrero Hill. You know, that's, definitely something fun to see and of course there's the the added um I guess you could call it layer of Marcus reading Catcher in the Rye you know like this whole story has been this like a coming of age story and and in a way I don't know if you would consider Marcus a type of Holden Caulfield but you know, there's definitely elements where you could see like he's sort of that protagonist that's written in the vein of a, a Holden Caulfield because Holden in Catcher in the Rye is like this character who I guess I don't know if he was the first one to do it, but like famously he would he's probably like one of the the protagonists the fiction in fiction who represents that alienated youth and and kind of made that trope popular at least in the in modern literature and Marcus he definitely starts out like that right he's he's the one who starts out uh in the first issue of Deadly Class as this alienated youth like the outsider who who feels like nobody can really understand him and he's so profound and he's got all these thoughts and ideas and then uh at this point in deadly class or i mean even in previous a couple volumes ago we reached the point where marcus felt like he had an epiphany right he was the one who was gonna save all of the all of his friends and he wasn't gonna just save them by killing everybody at the school or all killing all the teachers at king's Dominion, but he was gonna save them from the worst parts of their own nature by g- encouraging them to live lives of forgiveness, to not chase down revenge and be consumed with all of that kind of things, all the violence and and the hate. You know, he's telling people to show mercy mm. in, in a way, it's almost like him that's him being the catcher in the rye, you know, it's yeah. like he's the yeah. one who's like trying to stop all these kids from running through the field and falling off the cliff, but he's doing it by telling them not to chase down revenge and, and be consumed with hate.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm going to be perfectly honest. I never actually read Catcher in the Rye, so... Oh, shoot. I mean... <laughs> all that sounded real nice, but I don't really have... I can either confirm or or deny whether <laughs> I see what you see in it, and if I get, I see that... Um, superimposed on Marcus. <laughs> so I, I just have to take your word for it. It's all really pretty sounding. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what I do know of Holden Caulfield is he is kind of the stand-in for every edgy teen who thinks that the world doesn't understand them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's essentially what Marcus is, just this one kid who thinks... If the if everybody just understood the world the way that I did, we would all be so much better off. But they don't. And as such, I am a tortured soul because of it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I I would recommend reading Kaiser of the Rye. That's a that is a good book, man. It holds up.
1: I, I'm sure it does. I believe it. It's just it's one of those um classics. There's a reason that they teach it um, you know, to, to high school kids but I, I, I think i just whatever english classes i took for whatever reason they just never offered that so yeah so you know it, and and i get it like everybody has a different uh syllabus that they go by so yeah i just hap- i just happened to dodge it by yeah. by completely by accident so yeah. Um, I, I hear yeah. you
0: on that because I was an English major in college and there's still tons of classic books that I've never read just because whatever classes I happen to take, for whatever reason, the teacher didn't include like the Great Gatsby in the syllabus. So I've never actually read that, even though that's yeah. a
1: pretty a famous classic. work. Yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. You know what's up. Mm-hmm.
0: Then we have the splash of The year 2006 and it's a news article about hussein getting caught yeah big headline from that year yeah but yeah once we get past that we we see marcus and maria living peaceful and domestic lives and he's become this low-paid journalist writer and she's a nanny who works for rich yuppies but they just appear to be happy because they're with each other and they've walked away from their violent past. Marcus was a guy who always liked to write. And even though it seems like he's not a fan of his editor or the work isn't, you know, the best paying or the most glamorous. The fact that they're together, it kind of negates most of that unhappiness. Yeah. And they're they're just at peace with each other. And they're living pretty plain humdrum regular
1: lives. Yeah. It's it's super humble. Like I cannot use that term enough, but it's a very like it's a very happy existence. Mm-hmm. But but like all stories, inevitably like all lives really, I, I think we take for granted that the moments of peace are a gift to us and really life realistically is just full of turmoil. That's just the nature of it. Thing like that. The belief that life will maintain some form of order in into infinity is just an unrealistic um way to look at life. Mm-hmm. And I think whatever moments of joy that we have um however brief they may be we we often fail to we often fail to recognize them for the gift that they are and and that's what we see here is they're they're happy but it all eventually comes to an end when the realization when the revelation is made that Maria has this, uh, has several diseases or or uh, health medical issues, uh, they eventually reveal that she may have some form of lupus or she may have some form of arthritis. That, you know, it's either muscle or nerve, uh, damage that makes it so that. She has these spasms and she ends up dropping things. She can't sleep at night and she just, you know, lies awake in pain. And, but in spite of it all, they have each other and still things get worse because, you know, she, when she's at work and she feels this pain, she drops something and her employer sees it and he's afraid that she's going to drop her child and she ends up losing that job. And, you know that's another source of much needed income for them that they've just lost a, a revenue stream and like any like anybody in in that position the first thing that Marcus does is he begins to contemplate he they've made this promise to leave their former lives behind but there's this understanding that the money Would help them Mm -hmm. that, in spite of whatever his principles are, again, going back to what we talked about in the previous issues, how it took him this long to find something to get away, something to give him a reason to get away from this life. And now we are at that point where he has left that life behind him. But because of money, because of the money issues, it's that sad thing of. I don't have any skills. This is the only thing that I know how to do. This is the only thing I can do. This is the only thing that I'm good at. And because of that, I have to go back to it. That There's that thought that arises for that split second where he feels like, if I'm if I need to do this in order to help pay the bills, in order to take care of my loved ones, then I will go back to it. And it's a tough moment for Marcus but inevitably he he rejects that and I, there's something beautiful about that because he turns he turns away from that and he decides to just go on this road trip with Maria down to Santa Cruz and then from there he decides to propose to her and they just decide If we're going to be broke, we're going to be broke together and we're just going to be happy and we're just going to love each other. And it's all very like uplifting, even though they are in pre they are facing some pretty dark times. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's kind of (laughs) maybe it's kind of saccharine, but there is a a beauty to that whole thing.
0: Yeah, I definitely thought so. Yeah. Their whole story together throughout this issue really does feel like we've seen them grow up quite a bit compared to where they were when we first met them as teenagers. It really does feel like Rick Remender and Wes Craig have have aged them up, but they've also made them feel and look more mature in the sense that these are adults. And the one scene we get in the beginning when Marcus comes home from work after taking the bus, we, we have Maria... Uh, cooking something for dinner and then they just he he sits down he loosens up his tie and untucks his shirt and they just have a conversation you know like a lot of couples would do it's just a normal everyday kind of thing he's talking about work kind of grousing about it and she gives him some of her thoughts and you know that's when uh she has one of those uh physical spasms affecting her and that kind of changes or takes the conversation into another direction. And then we, you know, we, we move on to these other scenes of their, their life together, but there's just something about it, man. It it actually reminded me of a verse in the Bible and I recognize the uh, irony of quoting the Bible because there's also a scene in this issue where they talk about how Christians are awful, but there's this verse in the Bible in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, Paul writes, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. And it just made me think of, yeah, that, this sequence made me think of that verse. Because if Deadly Class is a story about growing up, then this is, natural indication of the difference between the past and the present of these characters lives you know we've really seen them grow up they're no longer speaking like children they're no longer thinking like children they're not reasoning like children they've put aside those things they've become adults they put aside those childish things so it it really does feel uh heavier when we see that maria is potentially dealing with a form of rheumatoid arthritis or uh, lupus, and they don't know what's going to happen. The future is uncertain because of their financial situation, as well as the fact that she's an illegal immigrant. Like, they're in a tough spot. But somehow, um, Mm -hmm. you know, as you described, they're able to have some happiness.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Pepper's
0: yeah. snoring good, man. She's resting she well. <laughs>
1: she is. I mean, I'm looking at her, and her eyes are, like, totally rolled up in the back of her. head <laughs> Like, I looked over, and I kind of did one of those, um, not to deviate too far from the topic at hand, but... I think people who have dogs kind of know this because if, if your dog is ever too silent for too long, there's a part of you that wonders if your dog is dead. <laughs> so I looked over and like she is completely out because all I'm seeing is like the whites of her eyes right now.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's also this uh the sequence that you mentioned earlier during your your synopsis where Marcus and Maria end up taking a drive to Santa Cruz and that's overlaid with this narration, which is this letter for his future kids that he doesn't have yet. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's a, that's also a great scene, like a a great sequence. Yeah. Like, like first of all, it's filled with so much hope. (laughs) Yeah, it is. And, and that, Mm -hmm. that first uh, opening panel where Mm -hmm. they're driving, down uh the coast and and he says first off june is the best time to drive down the one from pacifica to santa cruz do this at least once he's he's absolutely correct on that yeah because, yeah yeah like earlier this week i know we're we're already deep into november but it was actually pretty clear this week and i was driving down one and mm-hmm. skyline earlier this week and it was pretty clear and sunny and just looking out into the sea it really is beautiful hmm definitely worth doing if if anyone out there listening ever has a chance to 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 do that in the bay area it's it's worth the drive hello i thought something happened no i didn't hear you make a sound for a minute so i was worried you were dead
1: (laughs) no i was i was uh I was enthralled by what you had to say about driving down the one. And then I thought you were going to go into the rest of um, his letter uh, to his future children, but you didn't. (laughs) (laughs) I was waiting for you to go into that. (laughs) Yeah. uh, I mean, it's, they're all very lovely sentiments. It's, It's the kind of thing that you imagine out of a movie where someone takes all of their life lessons and just, lays it out for their kids and you know it's it's very I don't really have any other word for it but it's it's lovely you know mm-hmm. and this really is the high point for Marcus in the story where in spite of all the bad stuff that's happening and all the bad stuff that he's been through he can step outside of himself and not worry about the things that are coming in order to just really revel in his relationships um, to enjoy the company of his wife. And then when they get, you know, they get to the scene where he gives her the ring and then, you know, that's kind of a sweet little moment where they're in the bathtub. And then next thing, you know, they're in Vegas and, you see Zinzel, Sasawi, and Helmut there. And it, it all just feels so perfect. Like, everything is just coming together. Even though, as a reader, you know that they've got all these medical issues. They've got all these bills. But it almost doesn't matter because, you know, they have each other. They have their friends. And they're having this moment.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But, you know, this being deadly class and this being a story about the consequences of your actions there's bound to be something lurking in the shadows something that upends all that because that's what that's that's what the drama of it all is and we see stefan and he's found his joy he's found his happiness and he goes to social media he's watching he's watching them and just kind of he's not bitter towards them, but he's just kind of living vicariously through them without going there. Because again, some things are just best left in the past as far as he's concerned.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then when he goes to check in on his lover, he's found that someone shot him in the head. And shortly thereafter he he gets got and the the likely suspect in all this is probably going to be Shabnam because well the guy's kind of a shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really have any other words for it for him. <laughs> I don't know. Did you so in the build-up to this there was all this All this happy stuff that was really good. It was really heartwarming and wholesome to watch all this stuff happen. And I don't know. Did you see that ending coming?
0: Mm, Not specifically that Stefan would get killed. But I think because we know that there are still, what, four more issues of the series left after this? Yeah that there something has to be something to yeah, yeah exactly. it, it wouldn't it, i doubted that it would have just ended on a on a happy note and leave you at that you know there's just more to the story and and it's not like it's not like i need to pretend that i don't know how many issues are left to, mm. you know to try and maintain some kind of illusion of surprise for myself like, yeah. You know, I already know that there's one more volume of it. So whatever happens is, is going to happen. But yeah. it was definitely nice to see Zenzel, Tasawi, and Helmut again. Yeah. I don't know if they're going to have any bigger roles in the next volume. Mm. But if not, like, I, I feel like I'm pretty okay with where they ended up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's the calm before the storm. And if we go back to what we said about the last time we saw Shabnam, we remember that Marcus stopped Stefan from killing him, you know, because he was on his whole no revenge, show mercy kick. Mm-hmm. and And this is... Even Stefan at the time knew that that was a bad move on his part. Um, I I think the final line that he said in that flashback said something to that effect where he essentially pointed out, if we allow Shabnam to live, what's going to happen to us? We're just allowing a problem to fester that will have ultimately come back and get us in the end. And. Yeah. Unfortunately, he was right in this particular instance. We saw it absolutely come back. Um, even though Shabnam was in a position where he almost got killed, but Marcus spared him. And in that moment where Shabnam walks away, you, we all knew that he was still just a vindictive turd mm-hmm. who couldn't appreciate that his life was just spared by Marcus. And, and I think we all, you know, for everything we have to say about Rick Remender and how he subverts our expectations, uh, we all kind of saw what was going to happen with Shabnam and expected him to come back around in some form or another. Yeah. And unfortunately, this is the form it came in.
0: Yeah yeah it's that's a pretty rough ending for Stefan,
2: yeah yeah
1: it's i don't know I don't know how you felt about Stefan as a character, but it i don't I don't know if he's like cracks my favorites but i I do like him enough where seeing that end come to him it does sting. Yeah.
0: I don't know if I felt super attached to him just because he tended to be more of a background character other than a few crucial moments. But he's he was definitely somebody who uh, who stood out. Yeah.
1: He had a pretty tragic... Like, yeah, even though he was sort of a background character, there was still enough story there that you felt the pathos of what happened to him. Yeah, exactly. And I felt it, so. Definitely. Uh, Yeah. I don't know if I really have anything more to say about this issue.
0: I really did like the scene between Marcus and Maria in their hotel, wherever they were staying, Mm. when he finally proposes to her. Like, just that whole sequence was really well written it was believable you know like there is a realism to the dialogue where he's proposing to her but she's also like kind of surprised because she knows that she's going to have this she has this autoimmune disease that's going to affect her and it's going to affect uh marcus as well if if they're married you know like that's not just one person's life being affected it's it's affecting the spouse as well yeah Yeah. and she she tells him don't fool yourself whichever autoimmune disease i have my life is going to look different than normal consider what that means and then his response is all i know is it's dark without you i close the blinds you open them and let the light in you're my home. You're in trouble. We're going to make this work if you're into it. <laughs> and that's just some great writing, man.
1: Yeah, yeah. I
0: appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then it ends with, and that's how I got engaged to your mother. <laughs> <It reminds laughs> you think me that, that was that a song. nod to,
1: and that's how I met your mother? <laughs> that, that's
0: the first thing I thought of. I don't know if that was intentional or not, but that's the first thing I thought of when I saw that. <laughs>
1: What about you? Did you think of that show? I didn't. I might have <laughs> I might have read that line in the Mark Wahlberg voice. <laughs> What's his voice sound like? And that's how I got engaged to your
0: mother. Word to your mother. Hey, say hi to your mother
1: for me. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, the places we go on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, Do you think there's any chance that
1: Stefan and John are still alive? No, I'm pretty sure they're dead. I think they're stupid dead. They're, okay, <laughs> they're they are dead. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, we saw the bullet enter his skull, so uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No coming back from that one. (laughs) Do you believe that the killer is Shabnam himself? I'm pretty confident that it's Shabnam. Okay. But, hey, you know what? Rick Remender has surprised us in the past, so anything is possible.
0: Yeah. As long as you have the power of childish imagination.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Are you are you bracing yourself for this final volume? Are you ready for it?
0: Yeah, it's one of those things where I think I'll also feel a little melancholy after I finish reading it. Mm-hmm. You know, anytime you finish a really long series and you're done with the story, it it's not exactly that I feel like any of these characters are my friends or anything like that. And I mean, truth be told, I I probably wouldn't want to be in their lives if they actually existed. Mm. But I think it's just the experience of going on the journey with the characters and the fact that these past couple volumes, we've seen them grow up into adulthood. I enjoy that. I like stories where you get to see people grow up and mature. Mm. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I agree with that. I think... I think we've become pretty invested in the characters. This was a story that was recommended to us by one of our followers. And I forget who it was. Was it Binbastard? Selby.
0: Selby Selby. is.
1: Selby is, yeah. So, you know, thank you for the recommendation. This was something that was new to both of us. Mm -hmm. So we entered into reading this pretty blind. And, yeah, I've been appreciating it and I'm invested in these characters like you maybe I I don't know if I can honestly say that it's a situation where I view them as you know my friends as well or anything (laughs) like that they're fictional characters I'm not delusional so I don't know (laughs) if I have that kind of power in me to ignore that You're not walking around doing things imagining Master
0: Lin talking to you?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not, like, over here doing a Naruto run because I think it's going to make me faster. Um, (laughs) You know, I'm not an idiot. But... (laughs) um, I... Rick Remender has effectively made me feel invested in the lives of these characters, regardless of whether they are likable or not likable, whether you... um, identify with them or not like he's made me care about them enough that I want, you know, that once I imagine, like you said, once we get to the end of the story, the impact of it will be felt, you know, I will definitely feel the impact, the intended impact of whatever Rick Remender was trying to get through to this story, unless I'm completely and absolutely wrong about whatever he was trying to communicate <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of that uh episode of The Simpsons, where they have Art Spiegelman on, and oh, yeah. you know, no, no, I think it was Daniel Klaus well, it was Daniel Klaus, Art Spiegelman, and Alan Moore, yeah, and they're talking about I think they were talking to Daniel Clous Klaus and asking him about you know his his indie work, and he goes, man, but i really I'm really great at drawing utility belts.' I really hope they get me to work on Batman someday. (laughs) That was so good. Yeah. For all I know, like all this stuff about integrity and, you know, artistic virtue and, um, all these profound thoughts about growing up. I, we could, for all we know, we're missing the point entirely. And his whole thing is, (laughs) I'm just glad that I got to do this story so that now they get to put me on spawn. Yeah. (laughs) That's what I've always wanted to work on. Oh
0: man, it's interesting because Deadly Class is such a mix of cynicism and sincerity. Like, there's a lot of those cynical scenes and just uh, sarcastic scenes and things that delve in almost into the realm of black comedy. But there's also a lot of scenes that have a lot of genuine heart and emotion and there's just yeah it's interesting to see those kinds of tones juxtaposed within the same story so seamlessly where where you you can have a a scene where uh i don't know an angry boyfriend shoves his harpy of a girlfriend into a fire after chopping her in the head with an axe and then later on you can have a scene where like with Marcus and Maria the proposal scene like there's just something so sincere about that and you know the the mishmash of tones never really feels like it makes the book disjointed at all it it's always cohesive and coherent and yeah i i think i just appreciate that i i can't really understand how they pulled that trick off where you can have some really crazy over-the-top action and violence and stuff but still have these quiet introspective moments that are super effective
1: mm-hmm. well what we what can we say man rick Remender, he is scientist Wes craig he is scientist mm-hmm
2: They Mm -hmm. just
1: have that talent and that skill to really bring, to evoke those emotions in us. Yeah. It's quite a trick to be able to create characters that have such qualities that you find unlikable, but still make you care for them. Yeah. You know, like, I, I think that's a sign of a true writer a talented writer at that
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: i mean you can look at a bunch of guys you could look at like scott lobdell i i, I don't <laughs> that guy misses the point entirely <laughs> you <laughs> know <laughs> i don't think he's trying or if he is trying it, it doesn't it doesn't show a lot of uh craft whatsoever that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh he's able to create characters that are as complex as that, where, again, you might not like him, but you can still feel something for them. Whereas with someone like Scott Lobdell, I might not like the characters he likes, but I don't feel anything for them either.
0: <laughs> yeah. You're not. It does, they don't engage you or intrigue you into continuing to read his stories.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: But yeah, like you said, it, it's quite a trick that the deadly class team has pulled off. Not just a yep. trick, man. This is just straight-up prestidigitation.
1: Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I learned that word from reading a Moon Knight comic. Nice. I don't know what it is, but I'll take your word for it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a magic trick. <laughs> okay, okay. Nice, nice, nice. You got to use it today. Uh, It was well-earned and well-spent.
0: That's right. All my knowledge is accumulated from years and years of reading comics. My vocabulary is built on the back of Marvel Comics, man. All thanks to the likes of David Michelinie, Fabian Nicieza, Christopher Sebastian
1: Claremont... (laughs) Howard Mackey. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, shoot. <laughs> uh, so terrible. <laughs> All right. Well, anyways,
0: is there anything else? I guess that's it. Yeah. We'll have to just stay on the edge of our seats as we anticipate covering volume 12 next month
1: yeah yeah it's going to be it's uh it's going to be an interesting one because even talking about it right now like I'm, I'm not necessarily overcome with emotion at the idea of it but I don't know maybe somewhere deep in my subconscious I feel I feel that feeling that you get when something comes to an end
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, if anyone would like to contribute to the conversation, please feel free to hit us up. You can email us at between the gutters podcast at gmail.com. You can X at us at X.com. <laughs> <laughs> you can thread at us at threads <laughs> at between the Gutters on Threads. You can DM us on our Instagram at between the gutters. That's probably the best one. Uh we we've got a decent following on Instagram. We're we're yeah. happy for all the people that follow us on there. Shout out to all of you guys. Thank you for following us. Thank you for interacting with us when uh we post anything. We're so happy to hear from all of you guys.
0: Plus and, I feel uh, like Instagram out of all the various social media networks, it's it's got the least toxicity at least when it comes to our comics posts.
1: That's true. That's true. I enjoy our interactions with our, with, with the people who follow us on Instagram. And occasionally we learn things like, like we said, uh, Selby recommended this to us. So, you know, thanks to him. See, so we benefit just as much from Mm -hmm. our interactions as you do from, uh, watching our posts. So there we go. Uh, If you happen to listen to us on whatever platform you're listening to us on, if you could give us a high rating and, you know, in addition to that, do all that stuff where you subscribe and like and, you know, recommend us to other people, whatever. We would appreciate all of that because we just want to get out there and be heard.
0: That's right. Thanks everybody for listening next week in our next episode we are going to do the next installment of our DC top 25 countdown with number 23 on our list. You want to tell them what it is, or are we going to keep that under wraps until the episode comes out?
1: Oh man. How have we been doing this? Have we been telling people? I feel like, I don't think so. Right. Okay. Yeah. Just let it be a surprise. And uh, you know, if you follow along with us, um, you can listen to it or You can wait till the episode comes out, see what it is, and then read it, and then listen to us. Either way, just listen to us, because, you know, otherwise we'll break into your house and make you.
0: Yeah, you wouldn't want that. (laughs) Whenever Albert breaks into people's houses, he tends to take a dump on their living room floor.
1: Yeah, yeah. I do do that. That's a thing I do.
0: (laughs) 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 All right, thanks, everybody. Catch you next time. Peace
1: bye bye